Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly podcast. We pray you meet God and know that you are loved today. Be sure to visit us at risenking.life to take all of your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. We're continuing in our, our study of what does it mean for the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean for it to come in our midst? And today we want to look at the specific aspect of the presence of the king and the presence of the kingdom with all its benefits. And I want to take you to Acts chapter 4, where we see one of the clearest manifestations of both the presence of Jesus, our King, among his people, and the presence of the kingdom, even though there was this clash of kingdoms where there were those who did not want the gospel to be preached, there were those who wanted to stop the apostles and their mission, yet they were fearless, they were bold, courageous, and really unstoppable. So here's this passage, Acts 4. When they were released, speaking of Peter and John, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Or truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. It was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, here's a picture of the church. Here's the picture of a spirit-filled, spirit-baptized church. But I want you to see, and what I want to get across to you, 
is really there's this, there's this one central fact here. There's this one central principle that has to do with the very essence of the church. What's so easy to do is to immediately run and start discussing what's the function of the church? What's the mission of the church? What is the church supposed to be doing? And so what happens is that when we merely talk about what the church does and get into a list of functions and duties and responsibility, and, and though that's important, but we, we, we have this issue that we really need to understand very clearly what is the essence of the church. Because if you only look at what the church does, you being the church, and not what the church is, everything goes astray. So if you take, for example, the analogy of a human being and you describe the human being, either a male or a female, and you say, here's what human beings do, well, it could be copied by an android. Because an android could do anything that a human being does but it's lacking the essence of whatever it is that makes a human being a human being. In the same way, we have this issue that we have the possibility of having very busy churches, although all of us have had our worlds rocked in terms of even what we do as a church and how we do what we do because of COVID-19 and because of the current situation in the world. But you see, if if all you've ever said is this is what the church does, then you don't really have a grip on what the church is. And that's what we need right now. That's what's so important as we face not only going through this current crisis, but as we face what will the church look like in the future? What will, what will we need to do in order to respond to this disassembling of what the church has always done, and to begin to say, Lord, who is the church? What's the essence of the church? You know, we need to be really honest. And, you know, as we look at the condition of the church today, we're not making a very remarkable impact on the world. Some some ways we're making a very negative impact. And it's not my desire as we go forward to throw rocks at other churches or the way that they look at things or the way they do things. It's actually my desire that we see a greater unity and a greater partnership and ministry as we go forward. But we really must see and we must understand the essence of the church and then to be able to evaluate is the church really living in its essence, its nature? Is it really being who it was always designed to be, not just what it was designed to do? Well, one of the indicators, Peter, who was there in this first century, spirit-filled, healthy church, living church, he says when he writes to a church in his letter, 1 Peter 1, verse 8, he says, though you have not seen him, talking about Jesus, they had not met Jesus in person. They had received the message of Jesus through the apostle. He says, you rejoice in him. And then he describes this characteristic of the church. You, you rejoice in him 
with joy unspeakable and full of glory. See, Peter has a confidence as he speaks about this church that he's writing to. And his confidence is that he says, because you are the church, then you are experiencing a joy in Christ that leaves you speechless. In other words, if, if what we have as the church in our day is not the same as the church Peter wrote to in his day, something is missing about the essence. It's not something missing about what we're supposed to do or a function we're supposed to have or a program we're supposed to have. Something's missing in the essence and the nature of the church that isn't leading us to experience a joy unspeakable together in Jesus Christ. So at the very end of Acts 2, which we've looked at a couple of times, it says the church was enjoying the favor of the, of the people of the city. And then every day the Lord was adding to their number those who were being saved. So here we have a church in this first century baptized full of the Holy Spirit, and it's full of people. And these people, we're not talking about professional Ministers, we're not talking about people who have been trained and are skilled in, in practical Christian ministry. These are people who in and of themselves have such a radiance, such compassion. They're so responsible, and yet at the same time, there's an unassuming aspect. They're not promoting themselves or marketing themselves, and yet the whole city was praising this church but more important than that is every day this church was seeing people added to their number people being saved see what Paul explains what Peter here explains what Jesus intended is that we would see his glory we would see his kingdom's glory we would see his brilliance we would See, a church that has a stupendous nature and, and, and nothing less. And to, in a way, settle for something less means that we have adjusted our vision of the church. We've adjusted and demoted and downgraded what we believe the church can be. And even as we read the scriptures, we have the spectacles of our adjustment. We have a grid through which some of us have had very bad experiences in the church. <laughs> there are times when I still question my sanity, when I think about the church of my childhood and how I'm in the ministry. Um, my family was very committed to church. I would almost say that my parents acted sort of like church addicts. But the churches that I remember and the churches I grew up in had some serious corrupt issues. One pastor was having an affair with the organist. And uh, my mother ended up working at the church as a church secretary and found out about it. And though that I had many friends in that church, we had to leave that church because of this horrible situation of a pastor in moral failure, but no one speaking of it, no one doing anything about it. Even his own wife knew about it. Or being in a church where 
if you spoke of the scriptures or you spoke of the Bible, you were, you were, uh, you know, protested. Even I remember one time my father stood up and read a scripture, and a man cursed him out in the public uh, uh, meeting that took place. And my dad was just trying to bring a scripture to a situation, and he was cursed. Profanity uh, was spoken against him for having brought the scriptures to a meeting of the church. So it's not unusual for many of us to have very bad church experiences. And so there's almost, uh, uh, in a sense, an adjustment that if, if we have even just a little bit of health or we have just a little bit of life, we're okay with that kind of mediocre experience. And we have kind of a stifling that has taken place by mediocrity for years. You see, the Bible is not talking about a mediocre church. And if you put the spectacles of what we've experienced on when you read the Bible, you're going to twist what the Bible has to say about the church, and you're going to make it the church like what you already expect. You see, you can't simply whittle what the Bible says down and say, okay, well, this is what that's talking about. No, we have to let the scriptures speak to the glory of the church. The scriptures speak to the very essence of the church. We have to begin to get a hunger for what Peter said, that together they experience joy unspeakable, a joy so profound that it left them speechless. And that is supposed to be the norm. I know you know, what I'm saying isn't easy. Obviously, it's not programmable. It's not even producible. And yet, it is what is promised to us if we begin to understand the actual essence of the church. Because experiencing a joy in Christ unspeakable is what should be the norm. That's what the Acts Church was all about. And what I'm asking each of you who are listening to me and who will listen to me, I'm asking you, don't come at this passively and say, well, it is what it is. Instead, I'm asking you to, to help me. Matter of fact, I need you. I have to have you help me. As a matter of fact, I'm asking you to help yourself to, as we go through this, to actually listen, to, to begin to grasp and to get a vision if God is disassembling the church, friends, and even if God is disassembling America, then he's not doing it to destroy us. He's doing it to rebuild us. And he's doing it to do so in such a way where things that shouldn't be here, things like racism, things like uh, prejudice, discrimination, inability to to get over disagreements with one another, unforgiveness, bitterness, hiding our sins while playing like we're actually pious, having the appearance of spirituality but not actually being honest about our spirituality. If God is disassembling, then he's disassembling in such a way that he doesn't want those parts of it to be what, what remains. Uh, what he wants is the essence of the church. 
And there's this one thing, and truthfully, this has blown me away because I've studied this passage for years, but I, I came to realize other pastors have helped me, other scholars have helped me understand this, but the essence of the church is found in verse 31. This is actually the heart of the church. It's what the church is in the eyes of God. It's what the Spirit is working at in our time to bring about a church that is by nature what the church in Acts 4 was in reality. This is really and truly, if this central fact that we're going to look at, if this central fact is missing, then the rest of the ministries and all the functions of the church are nothing but android operations and really have no reason for God to support or resource them. Because he didn't call us into a mechanical church. He called us into a living church. He calls us living stones of a living building to the glory of God where Jesus is the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone. So what do you think the central fact is or the central you know, truth or essence of the church is? Well, it's in verse 31, and it might surprise you because it's not... It's not that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, a lot of you will, you know, you'll, you're almost certain that's what it is, but that's not the central fact. That's a symptom. That's a result of the central fact. You see, the Holy Spirit will fill, but He will fill the essence of the church. He will fill the central fact of the church. If we get that right, then the filling results. So what was the cause? What was the central fact? Well, in verse 31, it's the shaking. That, that really is the answer. And in verse 29, and we're going to look at this in a, really in terms of this whole context or this whole passage. But when I read it a minute ago, did you realize what the apostles are praying for? Well, they're praying that they could do the ministry of Christ. They were praying that they could do the church's ministry because they're being restricted by threats and intimidation. But here's what they pray in the face of conflict, in the face of restriction, in the face of threats on their life. You, you, you know, you and I might think, we're the first Christians who have ever faced what we're facing. Do you understand? <laughs> in every age, in every season, in every generation, the church has faced threats. But here's what they prayed. Look upon their threats. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. They tried to intimidate them to, to shut their mouths. And instead, they pray to the Lord and they say, let us speak your word. Let us continue to do it with boldness. And then they asked that that, that that word of God would be authenticated by healings, by signs, by wonders. They're, they're not backing down. They're doubling down. They're deciding that it doesn't matter what the threat is. They've got to meet the threat with boldness and with his word. Basically, they're saying, help us do what the church is supposed to do. That's what they're praying. They're saying, we're living in a context of resistance, persecution, and possibly death. 
And yet they say, Lord, let us continue with boldness. And may you authenticate our word through healings, signs, and wonders. They're praying that. Then how does God answer that? Well, it says he immediately begins to shake the building. So they prayed, and here is the answer. The place they were meeting was shaken. And then as a result of the shaking, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And then they began to speak the word of God boldly. Just what they asked for. Now, what is this shaking? You see, this is where sometimes we just pass on to, okay, they, they got filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God boldly. But there is, there is an intentionality in this narrative. There is a descriptor here that we must not miss. You see, the shaking wasn't a special effect. It wasn't a peripheral thing. The shaking was the heart of the thing. But you have to understand what the shaking means. You see, the shaking is what's called a theophany. It means that God from time to time has broken through into this material world and visibly represented himself. We see it in Exodus 19. God came down on Mount Sinai. His presence came down on the mountain. And the mountain was crowned with smoke and fire. And the mountain shook. You see, there's the shaking. See, Hebrews 12, 26 says, On that day when God came down and His presence came down on the mountain, the earth shook with His voice. What we're trying to, I'm trying to get across to you is in that building where they were praying, in answer to their prayer, God came down. Whenever God comes down, you see throughout Scripture, there's an earthquake, there's a, a shaking Israel never forgot him coming down on Mount Sinai, and they constantly prayed, Oh Lord, come back. Isaiah 64.1, listen to this prayers. He says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence. You see, when the presence of God is in proximity, it's so powerful, Isaiah is saying, that the timelessness and the solidity of the mountains look like nothing in comparison. The mountains look like just brevity of time compared to His presence. Even the solidity of a mountain looks like liquid compared to God's presence. Whenever God comes down, He shakes things. We read in Hebrews 12 a commentary on His coming down. In Exodus 19, he's talking about Mount Sinai. And the Hebrew writer says, at that time, this is God, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken. Oh, come on now, please listen to me. You understand God reserves the right to shake what can be shaken. And if you don't see that he's doing it, he's shaking what can be shaken. And that is every created thing can be shaken so that what cannot be shaken may remain. This is what he's up to even now. This is what he did in Acts 4. This is what he wants us to see. The shaking 
is that He's removing what can be shaken. Even our jobs, our health, our money, our sense of security, our sense of pride, our nationalism. He's shaking it so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Are you holding on to what can be shaken? Because if you are, if a mountain is not safe, if a mountain is not safe in the presence of God, friends, if a mountain is like liquid compared to the substance of our God and His glory, then why would you hold on to anything so, so unsubstantial? Here's what the writer says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So what does this say? Well, it says wherever God shows up, when his presence descends. And this is something he likes to do. There are people who have this sense, well, God is always present, but always present. But we need to, we need to destroy that, that as the only thing to hope for, as the only thing to look for. See, when he shows up, there's a shaking. Because next to God, everything else that looks so strong and looks so solid is revealed as shakable, as shaky. Do you see this? When the presence of God comes down, when his reality is clear, when you're seeing him face to face, then things that used to look solid suddenly appear very shaky. That's incredibly important right now. Next to God's power, all other things that ever impressed you. Every other power is powerless in the presence of God's power. Next to God's love, all the things that look like love are actually very pale. Why do you think it is that the people who experience this kind of presence of God, a David, a Moses, a Jacob even, why were they so bold in their lives? Why do you think they were able to die for their faith? Why is it that many of us will not sacrifice the least thing, if we're honest, who would say, yes, I will die for my faith? These men who experienced the, the shaking of God's presence, they became unshakable. David saw this. He saw the presence of God. He experienced this presence, and he, he speaks out about it, describing it in a verse that's very familiar. If you've been a Christian for a while, he says, and again, I'm kind of a King James guy for some of my old verses, but he said, thy loving kindness is better than life. For years, all the way back to the 80s, we sang a chorus. Thy loving kindness is better than life. We sang it over and over again. It was a beautiful chorus and we loved to sing it. But did we really know or understand what we were singing, what David had experienced? That this, this God of ours, who by nature is committed in love. This God who is a God that when you come near Him and you're in right relationship with Him, He covers you with His hesed. He covers you with His loving kindness. He love, loves you with a covenantal commitment. 
And what David is saying, that covenantal commitment of the love of God, this kindness not deserved, but a kindness that he shows when you have nothing to give him, that that kindness and that love is so solid. But David says it's not just that it's solid. He says it's better than life. It's more important than anything else in my physical life, my prosperity, my possessions. Everything else is shakable. It's expendable. How long do we have to go through COVID-19 till you realize that everything but the loving kindness of the Lord is expendable? Everything but the presence of God, the presence of the king, the presence of his kingdom. Do you not see how shaky your physical life is? When I got sick with COVID-19, I felt like the weakest man on earth. When I look at the future financially of this country, no matter which political party wins, I, I have no idea where our prosperity, our security will go. And whether it was the, the winds of the storm a week or two ago that came and fell right on my deck and crashed through with trees falling all around me, even my property is not safe. Everything else is shaky. Everything else is expendable. But in the light of the face of God, in the light of God's face, whether it was David or Moses, or Jacob, or Isaiah. I see, they say, what is really solid. And I see what is really shaky. And that's why whether we're talking about Isaiah in, in Isaiah 6, he's basically saying, I want, I want your presence. Moses had all the promises of God that would make him successful. God had promised that he would raise up a nation, that he would make Moses and the nation powerful. But Moses said, I don't just want your promise. I want to see your face. You see, that's why they prayed for his presence because anyone who saw the face of God became unshakable. Isaiah, after Isaiah 6, is not the same. Moses, after he sees the face of God, he wants to dwell in the face of God all the days of his life. His face was glowing with the glory of God. He was so glowing, glowing the people were afraid to look in his face. They had a courage from the face of God that could not be broken. Now, let's contrast this for a minute. Of course, everyone lives in some sense of the presence of God in a very general way. But the Bible says there's a way to know God personally. And, and you see, that's what the Old Testament saints wanted. They wanted, you know, they, they wanted what Jacob experienced. See, Jacob woke after, up after he had had this dream. And there was this stairway and the angels going back and forth. And that was one of those theophanies where God broke through the material veil. And Jacob could see a stairway uh, to heaven, basically, where God came down and talked with Jacob. 
And you know, when Jacob woke up, he said, how awesome is this place? This is the very gate of heaven. And he called it Bethel, the house of God. Now, do you know why he talked like that? Because you see, all the ancient people in Mesopotamia, they built these pyramids that were called ziggurats. And the ziggurats, they had these steps on them. And archaeologists have found these steps were far too big for human beings to use. So what were they there for? Well, they were basically landing pads for their gods. They were trying, by, the, by building these ziggurats, they were trying to establish a link between heaven and earth. Even the pagans, therefore, wanted to come into the presence of the gods. When Jacob woke up, what did he say? He said, this is the stairway to heaven. This is Bethel. I've seen God face to face, and I'll never be the same. And this is also, that story is really important. It's one of, the, it's one of the, the anchoring and linking stories between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Because the New Testament explains that where the presence of God was available, available sporadically, the presence of God could also in those days be fatal to people. We see that when God came down on Mount Sinai because no one could touch the mountain because His holiness and His power and His majesty were so great. They couldn't even, in a way, He was so awesome and awe-inspiring, fear-inspiring, that they couldn't hear Him. His power, His presence, His reality was only available sporadically. But now in the New Testament, we have this promise and we have... You know, the first payments of it in this Acts 4 sermon and then prayer and then result. We live in a time where it's for us to continually know Christ present as Savior. Christ present as King. But it's not, it's not really about me alone experiencing his presence. That's, that's a wonderful thing. It's a devotional intimacy that is available to me at all times, available to you at all times. But what we're really talking about is not an individualistic presence. It is a unity that comes in community with his presence as we gather in his name for worship. You see, when, when Jesus was gathering his disciples, he, he chose a man by the name of Nathaniel. Now, Nathaniel had never met Christ, um, but Jesus went up to Nathaniel and he said to Nathaniel, Nathaniel, I saw you under the fig tree. Now, for some reason, Jesus saying this about Nathaniel causes a shocking reaction. And, and Nathaniel basically kind of falls off his chair, and we're not really sure why. Uh, obviously, something important was happening to him under that fig tree, but whatever it was, Jesus got to the heart of Nathaniel by a prophetic word, and he was saying, I really know what matters to you, Nathaniel. I know what makes you tick. And then Nathaniel responds. And he calls Jesus rabbi. But then he goes further. You are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Do you know what Jesus said when he said that? He says, you believe this about me because I told you that I saw something under the fig tree. 
And then he says, you shall see greater things than that. And then you see he goes and he speaks about Jacob's ladder. I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You see, what we're seeing here, what Jesus is saying, is that what Jacob had had for a moment in a dream, Jesus is always, he's always the link, he's always the ladder, he's always the stairway of connection between heaven and earth. He's the one who brings the presence of God into our midst. He is the one through whom now angels can ascend and descend in order to partner with us, in order to supernaturally empower us so that we have, as the church, we have this connection to the presence of God. Not sporadically, but anytime we're together, if we'll just begin to see it. In John 3, Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus said, how? How can you be born again? But Jesus said, unless you're born of the Spirit, he says, then you won't be able to see, you won't be able to see this marvel. You must believe me, Jesus told him, because I'm the only one who both descended and ascended. I did that opposite. Who descended and ascended. Do you know what he's saying? Do you know what he's telling you? The reason you can be born again is because I'm the stairway. He's saying through me, the presence of God that made Mount Sinai smoke and tremble, that killed cattle and killed people, can, that presence can come right into your life, transforming you, and you can know it continually. That's what it is to be born again. It's not just a change of philosophy or morality. It's that now you become the place, the very house of God. You become the place of dwelling of the same God who made Mount Sinai smoke and tremble. In the book of Hebrews, it explains it a little bit more. It's an incredible passage. And in some ways, you can't fully understand the gospel until you understand what the writer of Hebrews has to say about the presence. It's Hebrews 12. It's in the latter part of the chapter. And he says this. He says, You have not come to a mountain that cannot be touched and that is burning with fire. You see, when we're talking about Mount, Mount Sinai, okay, get, we have to get our mountains straight. So the, the sight was so terrifying that Moses, seeing the presence of God on Mount Sinai, trembled with fear and was afraid even to set foot on that holy mountain. But what the writer of Hebrews says, because we have come to God not through Mount Sinai, which will kill us, but we've come to God through Jesus Christ, the stairway, the ladder, the one who descends and has ascended so that now we can ascend and so that the presence of his kingdom and the presence of the king can descend upon us continually. He says, you have come to another mountain. And that mountain is called Mount Sinai. And, he, and the writer of Hebrews, I love this. I love this language. You've come to the heavenly Jerusalem. See, not the earthly mired in all of the problems of this earth Jerusalem, 
But you've come to the heavenly Jerusalem, the real city of the living God, not the not the foreshadowing or the type of the city of God, but the real city of God. That's what you're a citizen of. That's what wants to invade our lives right now and our assemblies together. See, when we really come together and believe that we are Bethel, we are the house of God, that we believe that the ladder has descended to us and that we can ascend into the very presence of God in the midst of any crisis, controversy, anything that comes after and threatens us, if we believe we can ascend, then guess what he's saying happens? Thousands upon thousands of angels join us in joyful assembly. You have come to God. You've come to the spirits of righteous men made perfect to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Wow. I, I know this is lofty stuff, but at some point we got to stop with the mediocre stuff and the superficial android kind of church. And we got to get to this place of joy unspeakable, of radiance, of unshakableness, Many years ago, it's been a long time, I got to go to, to Norway and do two weeks worth of prayer summits and prayer teaching. And I was in uh, this one church, and the church had had an amazing beginning. Before World War II and before Hitler and the Nazis took over Norway, this church had, had experienced an amazing visitation of God. Young people had experienced the Holy Spirit. They, they actually told me of times in the church building of shaking that had taken place. They even told of times when they could see on the top of the heads of these, these men and women, these young men, young women, they could see tongues of fire over their heads. And God had called people from this particular city into a relationship with him and, and thousands had come to Christ in this, one, in this one city. And all of this had happened before the church was closed down and, and the Nazis made, made it uh, illegal to go to worship. And I had come, you know, in 2000, I think this was 2001 or so, so it was many years after World War II, and the church had never really recovered that same sense of power, that same sense of presence. And I began to ask them, particularly those who had been there in those days, what was it like? And one of the things that they told me that fits in with this is not only was there this very real sense of the presence of God, but they said it felt like the sky was filled with angels, that the angels of the Lord were there with them, that it was the Holy Spirit at work, it was the Word of God at work, it was signs and wonders at work, but it was this, even what Hebrews 12, this thousands upon thousands of angels over Norway. I have never forgotten that. That there's some aspect that, that when you do church according to 
the presence. It's not just us. It's not just we who are present. It becomes a supernatural presence. I remember watching as we were doing these prayer gatherings and, the, and it began to happen again. And you began to sense the presence in this one church. We were many churches gathered together for prayer. But in this one church, there was this powerful sense of God's presence. And people began to get healed. There was a lady there who was sick for five years. Her husband was a, a pastor. They had two children, and she had been so sick that she, had never, she hadn't been able to take care of her children. She had not been able to, in any way, be a partner with her husband. She had been pretty much locked away and had been incredibly sad for five years. That day, while we were praying, no one laid hands on her, no one prayed for her, but Jesus came to her in the prayer meeting. And he took her sickness completely away and he touched her and she began to laugh. Now, when she laughed, I, I was, it was out of place. It seemed inappropriate. I was trying to teach and she's laughing. She's laughing uncontrollably. She's experiencing a joy unspeakable. <laughs> and so I knew it was either the Lord or it was the devil, but I had to figure out which of the two it was. Because it was, it was an uncontrollable laughter. And then she told her story of how she had been sick. How while we were praying, she had a, a manifestation of Jesus. Jesus himself taking her sickness away, touching her, and putting laughter in her belly. A joy unspeakable. So I stopped what I was doing. I asked her, would she, she was a pastor's wife, a minister herself. I said, why don't you pray for all these other people? And they began to line up, every, almost everybody there, because, see, she had gone five years without joy, and now she had this undescribable joy. And she began to lay hands on people, and the joy went from their belly to their mouths, and they began to laugh. And this one man, he began to tell a uh, testimony later of how he had not had laughter himself, how he had served the Lord in a drug recovery center, and so many of those that he had loved had died, and he had lost his joy. He had lost his fire. But he said that day the Lord had thrown him into the fire of his love. And now he began to pray for people because he said, now I'm going to throw you into that fire as well. You see, these should not be sporadic. This is what we're called to do. This is the essence of the church. Do you get it? Let me translate it again for you. It says, there was a mountain that could not be touched. It was burning and smoking with the presence of God. But now you've come to a mountain that's just as real, a presence just as real. Though you can't touch the other mountain, you can come right into God's presence. You're right there with the angels. Every time we meet to worship as Christians, the same presence of God that was on the mountain could be touched, that could be touched, is present here with us. It's available. Well, the only way that can be is because the writer of Hebrews says, because our mediator, Jesus Christ, whose blood speaks a more gracious word. 
See, everything that the Bible really says about the essence of the church hinges on this encountering presence. Don't get me wrong. Of course I want us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But the first thing as believers is to say we want that presence. We don't want a mediocre sense of that presence. We want unspeakable joy. We want radiant boldness, glory, nothing less. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 24 and 25, Paul says, when an unbeliever comes into this kind of presence-based worship and he sees you, sees us worshiping, and Paul says he'll be convinced. He'll be convinced that he is a sinner and the secrets of his heart will be laid bare. And then he will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Friends, that's, that's what I long for. Why have church where that isn't happening? See, it's saying in worship, the presence of God is so real that even if an unbeliever walks in, though he may not be able to account for it, he'll be forced to acknowledge it. You see, does that happen? That's the only claim we have for ministry. And, and I'm trying to say it to you, it's not about sporadic. It's about continual. But it, it, what I've seen is that there has to be a percentage of people who know what it is to touch the real, to touch the mountain, to see his face, to encounter his presence. Paul the Apostle, when he writes to the Ephesians, he he says something so powerful. You see, the Ephesians were, they were a, a Greek people. They, uh, the church itself was in Turkey. They lived very far away from Palestine. Jesus never left Palestine. And yet he says to the people in the church in Ephesus, he says, Christ came and preached to you. Therefore you believe. Well, we know Jesus never went to Ephesus. He never preached there while he was on earth. Then what could possibly Paul mean? What he means is that when any of us who are Christians receive the presence of God into us and we go out ministering in His presence and not out of our own power, then Christ Himself is preaching, is healing, is ministering, is delivering through us. You holding back, you not being bold, you still holding on to what can be shaken will never see what you can see, but you can if you will yield and say, I need your presence. How did they get it? Well, they prayed. <laughs> Didn't you hear me? I read his prayer. They prayed and they prayed and they prayed. This is what they did all of the time. They prayed for his presence. They didn't form a committee. They didn't decide, well, should we have a youth group? Or should we have a children's ministry? Or do we need this? Or do we need that? No, they went to God because they said, we need your presence. We need your boldness. We need your healing presence. We need your signs and affirming wonders. Why is that? Well, they started with what the church is. They filled their minds with it and they prayed. This prayer that they prayed, now this is where many of us go astray, they actually pray an unselfish prayer. They're not really praying at this point for themselves at all. They're not saying, oh Lord, protect us from COVID-19. Oh God, keep our kids safe while they're in school. 
It's not that those are bad prayers. It's not that they're wrong prayers. They're just not big enough prayers. See, the bigger thing that you or I need is not simply an election where a mayor or a president or an administration comes in that's open to religious freedom. What we need, Peter teaches us here, he says, oh Lord, even if they're not open, even if they're threatening us, even if there's restrictions, he says, don't let us chicken out. That's how they pray. It's kingdom-centered. It's corporate. Don't let us chicken out. It's chicken out. It's prevailing. All right, but this is the last thing. And if you haven't turned me off already, you might after this. They make themselves the living sacrifice. See, when God's presence, when his fire came down, it was because a sacrifice was there. And in some ways you could say, I mean, this is just logical. The bigger the sacrifice, the more goats, the more sheep, the more oxen, the bigger the fire. But you see, God has never cared at all about the sacrifice of goats or bulls or even lambs or any of those things. They were all pointing to the one sacrifice that he would accept. And that's the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. But now he's asking, having you having received the work of Jesus as the one who is your substitute in the fire, as the one who is the substitute for your penalty and punishment and power of sin in your life, now he's asking, will you become like the apostles who made themselves the living sacrifices in that prayer? Look what they said. Oh, Lord, take us. We don't care if we get killed. We're going to go flat out for you. We're going to make ourselves a living sacrifice. That's what Peter prayed. Do you know how they did it? They said, we're going to obey you. We're going to trust you. And no matter what happens, we're going to obey you. And we're going to trust you. And we're going to make our lives a sacrifice. See, we need a group of people who will do this for us and with us. Who will lay down and say, Lord, your will, not mine. Your agenda, not my agenda. You know, as we finish this up, think about this with me. If there is no sacrifice, there's no fire. There's no power. There's no grace. The only way to really receive a king into your life is to give, give him the key to your whole house, to your whole life. Will you do that today? I mean, think about this. Yeah, you can pray, Lord, keep us from getting sick, or Lord, keep us from losing our job. You could pray those things, and the answers to them will satisfy you for a time, and then you'll go back to your insecurities about other things. But if you'll take those things, your, all the things you feel insecure, those are all the shakable things, and you put them on the altar and you say, Lord, here is, here's my life. Here's my sacrifice. It's my whole life, it's my agendas, it's my security, it's my future, it's my direction. I take my whole self and I put this on that altar. Now you're not doing it to get acceptance from God because your sacrifice would not make you acceptable to God. But you're doing it because you want to see the power of the kingdom manifest in our time, in our community. You're not doing it because there is no grace 
And you've got to work up in some way to get God to notice you. No, God has noticed you since before the foundation of the world. What you're saying is, I need to see that grace burn brightly for my family and my community, for my church. Because Christ is in your life, the ladder, the stairway of ascending and descending is right there. But you have to decide, are you going to let him descend? Are you going to choose to ascend? Only if the king, only if the king has the key to your house, to your life, will we see that kind of power, will we see that kind of presence. Friends, we're being shaken. Let's make it count. Let's hold on to the unshakable. Let's ourselves become unshakable for Jesus' sake. Please receive this. Amen.